Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today, Spencer Ackerman, is a, is a good friend of mine, longtime friend, Pulitzer Prize winner, National Magazine Award winner, the author of an amazing new book. It is called Reign of Terror, How the 9-11 Era Destabilized America and Produced Trump. He's been getting some great reviews. It is brilliantly argued, according to The New York Times. I also think it's just, it's like, I don't want to say it's a fun read, but it's an engaging read. It's written with a lot of verve and flair, as well as depth and knowledge. So welcome to the show, Spencer. Thanks, Matt. I feel like I am calling up to you from the basement of the house we lived in together. (laughs) Yes, we were roommates long ago in the, the heyday, really, of the global war on terrorism, which is what this book is about. As we record, we're one month short of the 20th anniversary of September 11. But something that you do in, in the book that I think is a really sort of interesting move is you you kind of start the narrative with the Oklahoma City bombing, which is a revelatory kind of moment in terms of how the United States as a country, as a society, and as a government um, thinks about terrorism. So can you tell us like what happened there and, and what does it signify? Sure. So I was 15 years old when the Oklahoma City bombings happened. And, you know, for a very long time, my impression of Oklahoma City from what, you know, as a teenager, I would hear on TV and read in the press was that this was the result of a survivalist, a term that was really rarely defined in its implication, who had grown to believe the government had reached a kind of tyrannical overmightiness that required in the, you know, perhaps extreme, but nevertheless definable traditions of people like Thomas Jefferson, founders of the nation who talk about, you know, replenishing the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants and patriots every generation or so. And that was for a long time how, you know, I and I think a whole lot of people understood those attacks. And when, you know, I grew up and started, you know, reading more about them, it was pretty clear that what happened was that a white supremacist terrorist, for reasons inextricable to his white supremacy, killed 168 people, including 19 children, that it turns out he wrote about why he did this in quite great detail. And nevertheless, it was pretty seriously obscured. And, you know, when I started writing this book, one of the first things that I kind of saw in my mind that I knew the book had to accomplish was to see the whole war on terror, to see not just 
the invasions and occupations of Afghanistan and Iraq or the drone strikes or the destabilization of Libya, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, Niger, Mali, you know, really on and on, but also see uh, the aspects of the war in terms of mass surveillance, in terms of immigration suppression, in terms of the demonization of Muslims. But in order to see all of that, we have to look not just at what happened when the war on terror was constructed, but what happened when there was an antecedent event with terrorism committed by a white person, and then understand retroactively what didn't happen, the ways in which the construction of a war on terror against white extremists who see themselves within the lineage of the American founding, how none of those kinds of punitive measures, those violent measures, those coercive measures end up applying, how no structure in terms of systematicity is set up for them. And while it is set up exclusively for non-white people, all of that infrastructure not only continues to exist, but grows in strength. So McVeigh, I mean, essentially is, I mean, he's, of course, punished. It is taken seriously. People think it is bad to murder these people. But it's handled in a deflationary way, right? Like, as you say, the ideological motives are kind of downplayed relative to this is like a strange guy. His connections to other people are not viewed as necessarily all that interesting. Um, and we don't have this kind of construct of like a big ideological problem that needs to be tackled. And he's put on trial in a conventional court system, right? I mean, it's a big deal, as some trials are, but it's like a normal trial within the normal bounds of American constitutional government. But initially, the suspicion was that this was the result of Muslim terrorists, right? The kind of default view when no factual information was known was that, you know, this was earlier, several years before 9-11, right? But the government and the media was primed to believe that Muslims were responsible for acts of terrorist violence. And that is part of the backdrop that sort of comes into play when 9-11 happens. That 9-11 is the attack that the system was kind of waiting for, so to speak. And looking at the really flagrant stuff, that's misattributed to American Muslims after Oklahoma City really shows a very dark foreshadowing of what is about to happen in the United States. And this wasn't just the reaction of people who were considered, you know, fringe or marginal. This was, to use Eric Hobsbawm's term for this, or to use this term in Eric Hobsbawm's way, respectable people bourgeois people, elites, uh, people like, I'm forgetting the guy's name for a second, I think it was Dave McCready, but the Democratic former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, one of the people in the government who has the greatest access to national security secrets, immediately comes out and blames Muslims for Oklahoma City. You have really respected liberal media columnists like Mike Royko from uh, the Chicago Tribune, one of, you know, the leading figures journalistically of liberalism in the late 20th century, who writes a column that basically just says, like, 
kick people out of the country, spy on them relentlessly, and shoot them when you need to. And all of this, it needs to be said, occurs with zero factual basis. There's just a like a very easy receptivity to the idea that if such an act of barbarism happened, white people couldn't have committed it. Now, remember what we're really forgetting when something like this occurs, which is that white supremacist terrorism is the oldest, bloodiest, and most resilient form of terrorism in American history. Its potential adherents are orders of magnitude inside the United States beyond what any form of jihadism could be, and that, as this episode really shows, that form of extremism has, in diluted and watered-down ways, quite a great deal of purchase in terms of generating apologia from elected politicians, important media figures, and, and so on. And only when we kind of look at that reaction can we properly contextualize what happens when terrorism isn't white. And it shows us, you know, it helps in, I think, a really important way, kind of problematize, I guess the academics would say, the construction of the issue after 9-11. I mean, we, we know about the invasion of Afghanistan, Afghanistan in the news lately. A lot of things have been said about Iraq over the years. But I think the bigger thing that this book really drives home is that we construct the problem after 9-11 in this very broad but also a little bit hazy, but definitely like about Muslims kind of way. You were ticking off all these countries, you know, Niger, Somalia, Libya, all these things. And what they have in common is not like a specific institutional or operational relationship to 9-11, but the idea that these are countries where there are Muslims and also some bad stuff happening. And it gets kind of lumped together, right? There's this like jihad issue. We use different terms for it over the years, but everything that sort of involves Muslims and violence somehow goes into this war on terror stew, even when it doesn't have any specific relationship to 9-11 or necessarily the United States at all. The construction of the war on terror from the start is the result of deliberate imprecision. First of all, think of the name itself. I understand and present in the book the term war on terror as a kind of social compromise that in part because of both in part because of both the deliberate imprecision of the Bush administration about who the enemy is so, which is you know serving a specific purpose which is to make the president in national security affairs something like an elected king but also because the United States has very little interest in drawing these kinds of distinctions in this moment of horror, this moment of trauma, and this moment of agony. And it is not respectable in that moment to say this is a war on Islam. It is not respectable to come up with some formulation where it's like, this is a war against a certain hazy understanding of extremism amongst Muslims, not all Muslims, but definitely just Muslims. Like, none of that really makes sense. But what does end up making sense as a euphemism is this phrase war on terror, which is extremely evocative, which is 
theological almost. We're really in, in the realm of metaphysics, which is not really a place you want wars to be conducted. But you always heard throughout, you know, the early years of the war on terror, the objection usually from well-meaning liberals that like, come on, this isn't a war on a tactic. This isn't a war against, you know, an ancient form of warfare. But that, I think, missed the point a lot, which was to conceal the fact that we were constructing an apparatus of repression and death that was pretty much designed to target those whom the president was permitted to decide the enemy comprised. You know, perhaps it's easier to see this by a kind of contradistinction, which is that, like, it's not the war against al-Qaeda, right? If there is a war against al-Qaeda, that also is still kind of question-begging, like, what is al-Qaeda? What does it mean to be in a, a war against it? And also, do we have to have a war? in order to stop a threat from al-Qaeda, what, you know, perhaps might we do instead? What do we not have to construct if this is an entity against a specific couple dozen decision makers and then a few hundred foot soldiers, you know, financiers and inheritance? And it also has the function of deferring, if not obliterating, the debate about what is necessary to do against those people. Instead, it keeps it on the realm of something that has to be done in order to instill a feeling socially of safety, which can really be defined however those who are empowered to wage this war see fit. In the book, I describe this as kind of the conceptual moment that the war on terror is doomed because you will always, after this point of definition, of deliberate imprecision through definition, you will always have to have a kind of political clash over when the task at hand is complete and various factions can contend their various senses of why this task still remains even after operations X, Y, and Z. It's the thing I, I always think about in this regard. You know, I was in college when 9-11 happened and, you know, the university, I don't know, they didn't really know what to do. Like, you know, classes were canceled, but they put together at the Kennedy School some kind of panel of like, you know, famous people who they had hanging around. I went because I'm like kind of a nerd. The Internet existed at this time, but old people didn't really use it. And so information disseminated a little bit more more slowly than it does today. And it's it's either 9-11 or, or 9-12-2001. And David Gergen, who's this like extremely establishment guy, but not like plugged into the highest levels of American national security, he's talking on a panel and he's saying what would quickly come to be seen as like a very left-wing view that like, I hope we don't start to see this as like a huge global military challenge. I hope we can keep this threat in perspective, all this kind of stuff. And that's because like, he didn't know where the establishment view was going to go. Right? Like, this is just like one guy. And he's like, looking at this. And he's like, okay, like, I, I can see that there's a risk that it's going to go in this direction. And I wonder what your view from your reporting over the years is like, why? Why did the Bush administration take this in such a kind of 
grandiose kind of direction. Like, why did they decide that they wanted a war on terror? Well, there are a couple kind of structural explanations for that. And then there are kind of specific, you know, historically, perhaps idiosyncratic, you know, reasons for that. From a structural perspective, it's hard to understand the war on terror without reference to the Cold War and the experience that the Cold War played, not just in the growth, expansion and justification of American power globally, but also the kind of cohesion it induced within American elites, politically, economically, and socially, anti-communism became a way of life. There are some really excellent books about what that meant for America in terms of a kind of limitless appetite for inflicting essentially imperialist violence on people. I would really recommend listeners of this podcast, if they haven't already, check out Vincent Bevins's recent book, The Jakarta Method, for a lot about how anti-communism in the United States overseas, like, takes on a really terrifying eliminationist character, particularly in the hands of the CIA and the assets that the CIA cultivates. Without anti-communism, without the Cold War, there is this enormous confusion in the 1990s about what the purpose of this empire that America finds itself to have cultivated now is. The central rationale for it is gone. There's no more Soviet Union. It appears to a lot of intellectual elites that there not only no longer exists a competitor to the United States from a nation state perspective, but more importantly, there is no theoretical alternative to what the United States is now this kind of bourgeois capitalism that is, you know, now free and empowered to spread an unrestrained form of capitalism. You know, we call it neoliberalism around the world. And that this is basically the way a lot of intellectuals and a lot of people who are kind of plugged into policy, both, you know, amongst liberals and amongst conservatives, kind of come to understand what America kind of is and does now, but what it lacks in a kind of socially satisfying way is a single enemy, an enemy around which all of the architecture of not just, you know, elite cohesion can rally against, but also the purposes of American military and intelligence power to kind of unleash and all of a sudden, this challenge to the United States that is, if you listen to Osama bin Laden, you do not have to agree with Osama bin Laden. You just have to understand why, in his own words, al-Qaeda did what it did. All of that is understood not as the specific grievances that he points out with what the consequences of American power are for the Muslim world, which in his telling and is not exactly wrong, is a tremendous amount of death, immiseration, extraction, and repression in the Muslim world. His critique, obviously, I think, goes tremendously off the rails, but he is talking about something material. And instead, the United States, in all of its elite formulations, both politically, militarily, 
journalistically and the intelligence services understand none of that. They're not interested in any of that. What they're interested in instead is looking at kind of the other half of the critique, the critique that applies what is happening to the Muslim world in a pretty like messed up spiritual interpretation. And once that happens, it is a lot easier to do two things. First, it's much easier to pathologize the Muslim world, and in particular, the Arab world, that, that particular milieu that bin Laden arises from. And also, that allows this kind of grand conception of a global struggle against a real challenger to America that might attract adherents from over a billion people. That makes it seem like the kind of grand, and Bush uses the word crusade at one point, though he quickly you know, finds reason to regret it. That is the sort of thing that can marshal this kind of America is back sort of response. America has a rationale for this empire that it decides, having long ago decided, for really understandable, articulable, material reasons. It is better from the perspective of an imperialist of any variety to be the hegemonic power than to not be it. And the understanding of an alternative, you know, during the 1990s to that comes under a great deal of challenge because it is seen as unacceptable to pull back these imperial obligations and not be a global policeman. And then there are real specific idiosyncratic things that happen with the Bush administration. For one thing, we still don't know a whole lot about things like Dick Cheney's August 2001 meeting with his fellow energy executives. But these were oil men who ran the United States government in all of its awesome, destructive, violent, and extractive capability. And accordingly, they saw the world a certain way. What I'm getting at is, you know, not just that, but also they had come to believe that during this period of unchallenged American power, there had not commensurately been an effort at marshalling that power to sufficiently entrench the prerogatives of the United States against any challenger. But like, remember that when Dick Cheney is defense secretary, his undersecretary of policy, the kind of person who sets policy for the Pentagon and accordingly the military, is Paul Wolfowitz, who comes up for Dick Cheney with a rationale in 1992 for what American power in a post-Cold War environment ought to be. And that was about ensuring that no challenger of any sort ever emerged. And now here was essentially old ideas that flattered both ideological conceptions of what the Bush administration believed the purpose of American power was, but also direct material interests that they are seeking to advance, husband, and secure. All of that together kind of puts America on this course that funnels us down this one very martial, very expansive, and very violent track. And then there are also some like particular idiosyncrasies. You know, George W. Bush for reasons that I think any, you know, human being can kind of like say, like sticking out in his mind. He tried to kill my dad. He tried to kill my dad. Like uh, Saddam Hussein tried to kill my dad. Like he has nothing to do with 9-11 at all, but it doesn't matter. And that becomes the lesson 
of how all of this coalesces, that who the enemy is doesn't really matter from the perspective of enemy formulation. What matters is that the president gets to tell you who the enemy is, and that matters. And this is really the kind of like, I mean, if young people are listening here, like the temper of these kind of like high Bush years was really very odd in retrospect. The second inaugural address is like one of the craziest texts that you will ever see in American politics, in part because also the media coverage of Bush was so much kinder than the media coverage of Trump. Like when Trump would say something really weird the newspapers would all be like, yeah, that was pretty weird. Uh, when Bush would do it, it would be taken like very seriously, right? As like, okay, the flame of democracy burns in the hearts of man, and we're now going to overthrow every government in the world, I guess. And people would like take that extremely seriously. And it stems from there were all these anxieties floating around pre 9-11 about, right, this was like a big Bill Crystal thing. That, you know, you needed this kind of enemy uh, about the role of the American military in the world, about what to do with the unipolar moment. Uh, the late Charles Krauthammer was like a big proponent of the view that we had to, I don't know what, it was like sort of like kick as much ass as possible before the Chinese catch up or something. And it became this very wild sort of thing that dominated public attention at the same time, I think there was less attention paid to the sort of domestic aspects of this. But you've reported a lot in the sort of creation of a huge state of exception with regard to America's Muslim citizens, right? Well, again, this is what we didn't have with Tim McVeigh, right? This was like, it was bad to kill all those people. And he was like arrested by normal arresters and put on a normal trial in a normal court. Right. In a state of exception, you decide there's like an emergency and the rules don't apply. Right. And so you can do all kinds of stuff that's outside the bounds. And like Guantanamo is the ultimate version of that. Right. You decide after talking to some lawyers that there's like a weird loophole where this piece of land is like neither in the United States nor Cuba. So people can just be held completely outside the bounds of law. And then the reassurance to a normal American that, like, this is not, you know, people who, like, lose their shit about being asked to wear a cloth mask were totally okay with Guantanamo Bay because there was an implicit understanding that only Muslims could ever be subjected to that kind of treatment. That, like, it wasn't really a slippery slope that could affect you. And an important thing to underscore with the state of exception is that, like, yes, there is that you know, the rules don't apply here, but the state of exception, particularly as Agamben defines it, is always occurring under the cover of lawfulness, that the law doesn't simply cease to apply in an omnibus way. What happens is, is that the protection of the law no longer applies to certain people, and whatever previously understood as lawless action whether it's mass surveillance, whether it's indefinite detention, whether it's outright torture, the government seeks to visit upon such people. That is lawyered very heavily. All of the things you are talking about, particularly like this is one of the, you know, real wilder things that I encountered really early as a reporter was finding that like when it came to what you wanted to do to people 
in Guantanamo Bay, either to torture them or to deny them access to the judicial system, a flurry of contradictory legal interpretations held that Guantanamo Bay was and was not the United States, depending on what the exigencies of the circumstances you wish to inflict upon them required. And all of those circumstances, Bush administration lawyers took quite great pains to clothe in the garb of law. And it would take contrary legal scholars to say, like, this actually isn't lawful. But most often, particularly when liberals did this, and we see this quite consistently inside the Obama administration, they do the exact same thing. They just calibrate it somewhat differently, but nevertheless preserve a state of exception. So I think that's a great time to take a break and let's pivot to the Obama years. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I think to a lot of people, you know, this is going to be in some ways the hotter takes in the book is actually the treatment of the Obama administration. I mean, after Obama becomes president, I would say the global war on terror, it gets it gets a lot less crazy. I strongly disagree with that. Well, no, this is what I want to say. Sorry, to put it more precisely, the mood in the United States of America becomes a lot less crazy. If you are not personally super invested in these topics, it recedes from the headlines, right? The president is not making wild assertions about what's going on. And there was a real effort made to sort of calm things down, right? But what you detail is that really very little of this zone of in effect lawlessness is actually dismantled. In some ways, it expands. And it's mostly just sort of professionalized so that you now have an institutional bipartisan, not on the front page day to day, war on terror that's just kind of happening in the background, even as like Dodd-Frank or whatever else becomes the issue of the day, the war on terror is now just a reality and not something George B. Bush came up with one afternoon. It's Barack Obama who really makes the forever wars forever. Now, I don't say that to suggest that like this is permanent and people, you know, do not, if they organize, have the power to dismantle the war on terror. It's indefinite, though, right? It's not permanent, but it's indefinite. Well, in the same, you know, this is probably a little bit facile, but like much as Bill Clinton ratifies Ronald Reagan's administration in the garb of posing an alternative to it, Barack Obama does the same thing to George W. Bush's war on terror. And I want to just 
challenge a little bit of the way you you set that up when you talked about kind of like the craziness recedes, you know, during the Obama years. I know what you mean, but it's important to point out that, you know, the craziness never recedes in the Obama years. It takes a different kind of tributary. Um, and, and, you know, that in particular is the subject of the chapter of the book that looks at uh, the rights reaction to the way Obama wages the war on terror. The crazy of the war on terror basically just like separates itself somewhat from the operations of the war on terror and reaches a kind of cultural escape velocity in which Barack Obama himself, and this is the meaning of birtherism, is the threat, is the terrorist, is the jihadi waiting to undermine the United States. This is the same thing that we see when a Muslim cultural center in Manhattan that sees itself as kind of the equivalent of the JCC or the 92nd Street Y, you know, something that for those, you know, listeners who aren't New Yorkers, you know, might need to know is basically just something that plays this kind of like cherished intellectual role in the social life of New York City, that becomes something called the Ground Zero Mosque and is viewed as like Mehmet the Conqueror, um, you know, taking Constantinople <laughs> and like transforming uh, Hagia Sophia into a mosque or like something like that. That craziness animates the response to the Obama years. Obama wants to take that temperature down. He wants that element of American politics that he understands is toxic, nativist, and disgusting out of the kind of political bloodstream. The trouble is, is that as long as you keep the war on terror going, as he did, you can't do that. The politics of the war on terror are not separable from the functions of the war on terror. This is something that every single general, intelligence official, senior Pentagon, Justice Department, um, Department of Homeland Security, policymaker, White House person involved in the war on terror of both parties that I've interviewed for 20 years simply refuses to accept that there is any relationship at all between the functions that they husband, that they implement, that they inflict on people, and the rise of precisely this kind of aggrieved nativism that feeds off a kind of vulnerable and perpetually innocent patriotism under siege and accordingly under license to act violently. That these things have any relationship at all. There's a moment in particular when, you know, John Brennan, Obama's most important counterterrorism advisor and later uh, his third CIA director, makes a series of speeches that are designed to firmly pivot the United States away from any conception of waging a war on Islam. And the right goes absolutely insane about this. You mentioned Charles Krauthammer. He really flipped his wig on this um, because he started saying, like, they describe themselves as jihadis, which, you know, interestingly enough, um, no one ever tried to say that anyone who practiced Christian identity was a repository of true Christianity, because like that sounds very self-evidently absurd to people who are familiar with Christianity in a way that Americans are not made to feel familiar with the tenets of one of the world's great Abrahamic faiths. However, when you look at what Brennan and through him Obama husbanded, which was an apparatus of lethal assault 
around the world, unconstrained by time, by space, only really constrained by what assembled bureaucrats in a quasi-legal but never lawful process determine the proper scope of them to be, that gives a war on Islam every tool and every opportunity it could possibly want, regardless of the intention of its architects. And that is what Donald Trump inherits. It is what Barack Obama had an opportunity to dismantle and doesn't. You know, there was this tremendous discourse during Obama's second term in particular with the like, well, why won't he call it radical Islam? And I think part of the reason that gains steam on the right, I mean, the reason it makes sense to people is that no matter what you call it, right, like no matter how much you try to like distance this enterprise from anti-Islam politics, like we do all know what you're talking about. Right. Like when you say violent extremism or terror or whatever you want to call it, it's like we understand that you, in fact, like do not mean some shit going down between non-Muslims in Honduras. Right. Yeah. You don't mean the IRA. Right. Yeah. You don't mean the IRA. You don't mean Tim McVeigh. Right. And like we know that like Obama didn't mean that. John Brennan didn't mean that. These Obama era officials, like they're trying to clean it up. They're like trying to do better politics, better messaging around it, something like that, move past Bushian ambiguity. But there's this constant moment of like, come on, man, as a reaction to it, because it doesn't it doesn't make sense detached from Islam, because the enemy is construed to include not just the Taliban, but ISIS, but Boko Haram, but Al-Shabaab in Somalia. But also your neighbor. Right. Well, and and eventually the pulse shooter. And but so what becomes it's like if it's not Islam, like what could it possibly be? Like what sense does it make? And the other turn that could have been taken, I guess, would have been to declare victory after Osama bin Laden is killed, right? To say, you know, Obama inherited a lot of this. You couldn't have just gotten rid of it on January 21st, 2009. But then you have this moment where you could say, all right. You know, that was 9-11. We're moving on. Well, so first, Obama's reaction is to get rid of the name War on Terror, but not get rid of the thing. And like that is a fateful decision. It is a cowardly decision, but it is also characteristic of the strain of liberal complicity in the War on Terror that is also like a major subject of the book. You make the point about radical Islam. And why people, you know, on the right are attracted to the term. Well, the war on terror, as you point out, is fundamentally a euphemistic thing from the start. And like people aren't stupid. They understand, perhaps sometimes in inchoate ways, that they are being told something that isn't strictly true, that the name that is being attached to this thing that they are being told again and again by their leaders and by the validators of their of their leaders in the media they choose to consume is that they face a civilizational threat. Like the ways in which it was acceptable to just speak of this war as just simply like, this is a struggle that will last a generation. And believe that to be a kind of like Kennedy-esque ennobling enterprise that shows the United States can do hard things in the world still. You know, that's psychotic, but it is also entirely commensurate with, you know, the settler colonialism that established American dominion over its section of the continent. And what radical Islam 
comes to mean isn't, I think, like the way a lot of people kind of interpreted it at the time, which is like this kind of crazy paroxysm of rage. But what it really means is it's a declaration about whose terrorism matters and whose terrorism doesn't. And that's the work that terms like radical Islamic terror perform. That's why Donald Trump is so aggressively interested in asserting them, because he understands that there is a constituency for all of this that has existed after 9-11 that taps into something very primal about the American right and about, frankly, white America. And that constituency needs to hear that this is not a war on terror. This is a war against radical Islam. Many years before, white supremacists were marching through the streets of Charlottesville talking about how they will not be replaced as white people. There was an effort, a plug and play bill writing effort in state legislatures across the country, you know, Alex style plug and play, cut and paste bill introduction that sought to outlaw Sharia law. Now, no one came up with any kind of explanation about how it was that respecting Muslim divorce rituals would undermine or overthrow the Constitution, but no one needed to because it wasn't about Sharia law. It was about persecuting Muslims. It was about ensuring that there is less and less of a public space to be an American Muslim. And that is what the term is really about. And that is also what, on the one hand, the wages of euphemizing the war and keeping it undefined are, and also the wages of this fateful and tragic And, you know, from my perspective, morally risable decision of the Obama administration to perpetuate it as if keeping the war won't have these responses that we saw manifest all throughout the Bush administration. And then Trump's, I don't know, genius is to really just say the thing, right? Free of euphemism. So it's Trump says, well, what if we didn't let any Muslims come to the United States? Like, doesn't that solve the problem? And, you know, it's a good, I don't want to say it's a good idea. It's a good question, though, right? Like Trump puts on the table the thing that throughout the Bush and Obama years, nobody in power wants to say, which is that if we need a civilizational mobilization against a generational internal enemy, and that enemy is Muslims, like, why don't we get rid of them? Right. And now, like, Obama doesn't say that because it's horrifying. Bush doesn't say that because he, like, has a foot in respectable opinion. When Trump says it, it's like people lose their shit in elite circles. But the base is very drawn to its logic. And it is a logic that is, like, really grounded in the idea that this jihadist threat is a generational, you know, whatever, whatever, right? Like, if it's this important, like, why not do the thing? And nobody has a good answer to that, I think, because they don't want to say, well, actually, the whole meta construct was kind of BS. Well, the other element that feeds that, and it's, you know, from reporting I've done, a kind of sense of an exhale, you know, on the far right, that like, finally, Someone has told us the truth about this thing. 
someone has brought into direct relief the thing that our leaders and our opinion validators have told us for 15 years we were doing but couldn't name because of, you know, name your constraint, usually this rapacious liberal culture that ensures, like, functionally that, like, these wars continue and so forth. But that speaks to the kind of atmosphere that exists around the time of Trump. And what I mean by that is that the war on terror by 2015, when Trump descends, you know, the golden escalator, is a disaster. And everyone knows it. Elites don't try and defend it anymore. They are trying to render it less conspicuous while keeping the elements that they consider to be kind of non-negotiable. Some of these are done for material reasons. Some of these are done for bureaucratic reasons. Some of these, in the case of the Obama administration, are done for, you know, political cowardice. But nevertheless, no one at this point, by 2015, is arguing anymore that the war on terror is this glorious struggle that we have to maintain at all costs. And that, like, we're going to win and it's going to be great. That's right. And that instead, all it is, is disaster and pain while still keeping in mind that the rationale for all of this was this, like, sense of, you know, American destiny. It's American exceptionalism having a moment of extreme cognitive dissonance and not being able, particularly in its more aggressive and, and violent versions that you see on the right, able to really reconcile this moment. And Trump provides that reconciliation perfectly. He recognizes that at this point, there is an enormous constituency to say that like the wars themselves are disasters. But what follows from that isn't that we have to get out of them. It's that we have to no longer listen to the people who gave us those disasters. And those people are the respectable people in both parties, and in particular, the barons of the security services. And here, those elites have no answer for that. No answer for that at all, because on that level, Trump is right. Those are the people who gave us this disaster. Those are the people who, once you kind of break the seal and say that this has gotten us like nothing but misery that, you know, the right understands that misery, not in terms of material misery, but in terms of humiliation, in terms of America having gone to war to showcase its might. These are things that Donald Trump contemporaneously supports at every single turn, regardless of how he wants to retcon it later. What that leads to instead is a sense that an argument that like the wars are less necessary than the violence the wars were supposed to unleash. And what if we brought that violence in the direction that we believe it ought to have been brought to anyway? That is to say, militarizing the border beyond the militarization that occurs all throughout the war on terror and even before. Mass deportations. Obama deports a really unforgivable number of people. And yet the right, you know, for obvious reasons, never kind of credits him with doing that in order to get to what Obama very, like, foolishly and cruelly decides is just like the cost of getting to a sensible immigration policy. All of this instead just becomes the kind of, you know, carbonized husk 
of the war on terror being cracked open. So like the nativist ore at the center of it can be properly mined. But also the continuation of external violence. I mean, I feel like this is something that's very misunderstood about Trump era foreign policy, that a lot of people, people on the on the left, to an extent, have been eager to give him credit for his criticism of sort of prolonged ground-based military interventions abroad. But the inverse of that for Trump was always bomb the shit out of them, right? That like the Trumpian idea is to eliminate the like hubris elements of American global engagement to eliminate the idea that, like, we are going to build stable democracies abroad, that we are going to liberate the women of Afghanistan, the sort of semi-bullshitty elements of it. But, like, it is definitely not that we're going to stop the part where American missiles and bombs and aircraft patrol the world in a lawless and violent manner. And all that stuff intensifies quite a bit during his administration. Quite significantly. And look, I tried. I'm reporting stories out about how like Trump's first two years of drone strikes eclipse the drone strikes that Barack Obama launches in his first two years, which were the high watermark of the Obama era drone strikes. Civilian casualties in Afghanistan increased by one study 330%. You know, Trump talks endlessly about how much of a disaster the Afghanistan war is, even in an amazing speech in August of 2017, while escalating it. That is also something that, like, is a feature of the war on terror, like, starting with the real, like, apocalyptic turn in the Iraq occupation, which is, like, a point at which, like, elites like particularly in the Bush administration, like deny, 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 deny that this is a disaster until finally disaster can be understood as a rationale for escalation. And that is something that Trump like really does pick up on. And, you know, here's Trump talking about the wars in terms of imperial tribute. You know, we have to take the oil. It was offensive that we we invaded Iraq and we got nothing for it. We didn't even get the oil. Well, look, a whole lot of American hydrocarbon companies will kind of giggle at that because of the opportunities for investment in Iraq's oil. Once Iraq is completely destitute and reliant on the United States, that looks a whole lot different than what it was as an OPEC leader under Saddam Hussein. What Trump really gets there is that there isn't a constituency for the operations of the war on terror. There is a constituency for A, revenge on those who have frustrated the war on terror, but also salvaging the righteous violence against an identifiable racialized other that doesn't just exist abroad, but exists in the United States. All of that together says to me that Donald Trump is not an alternative to the war on terror. He's a lagging indicator of the war on terror. You and I are 40-year-old New Yorkers. Like, as long as I think, like, we've been, like, alive and paying attention to, like, local media, we've known Donald Trump. And we've known that Donald Trump is a con man. Like, he does this with, a like, a wink and a nod in movies. Like, Donald Trump's great talent 
is manipulating reality for his benefit. And like a lot of people, particularly those who are very used to a kind of superficial analysis of who is from a kind of distorting partisan perspective, a proponent and who is an opponent of the war on terror, Donald Trump seems to scramble. And some people take that scrambling in a way that like could potentially be useful to their agendas. But they're not the ones using Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the ones using them. This is how Donald Trump always works. Nothing that Donald Trump does in power opposes the war on terror. It's only what he says. There's one exception to this, and it comes sort of after all else fails. And that's Trump deciding to negotiate, not even negotiate, Trump decides to sue for peace with the Taliban because there's no other way out of Afghanistan. And I refer to this as the one valorous act of his disgraceful presidency. So I think this is a good, Afghanistan's a good place to sort of close on. You know, Joe Biden, he has always struck me over his career that's like really a like paid up member of the national security conventional wisdom in really like a not great way. And I was surprised that he stuck with the Afghanistan withdrawal, that he continues to, you know, take a lot of flack from like the think tank zone and all these kind of people about it. And it it, it was just interesting to me. I mean, I think it's the right thing. It strikes me as sort of out of character. It obviously stems from what Trump did in his kind of final months in office. But does it give us some some kind of reason for hope that there is a at least a slinking away from this kind of bad period in American history? Well, I want to put some stress on the degree to which it, it is slinking away. Because with the Afghanistan withdrawal, when you start to poke at it, it's less than meets the eye. I don't mean to say that, like, this is a foregone conclusion, but, like, to just look at the tail of the tape here, we've got a troop withdrawal like we have seen in previous war on terror battlefields, in particular Iraq in 2011. We also see explicit statements from Frank McKenzie, the general in charge of Central Command, and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin that says they reserve the right to surveil Afghanistan post-withdrawal and bomb it as necessary whenever they see, you know, however, you know, this will be defined and it will always be defined publicly deceitfully. I'm going to give you some spoilers here for what's about to come. You know, whenever they decide that it is necessary, however they define that, to bomb Afghanistan. And we're waiting to see whether this withdrawal actually sticks or it becomes you know, intolerable to the foreign policy establishment to see the Taliban overrun Afghanistan. I think it is a very open question whether this withdrawal really forms a disjuncture in American foreign policy or whether it lurches more to a kind of state of continuity whereby perhaps Afghanistan is not directly occupied by the United States, but the United States functionally dominates Afghanistan. You can read about this in the Friday edition of the Forever Wars newsletter that I write and publish on Substack. But in addition to the pressures that we see, you know, mass human misery occur when these disastrous wars 
prompt American pullback. We're, we're waiting to see how durable that pullback actually is. And we're often, when discussing them, conceiving of the human disaster that's you know likely should the Taliban reconquer Afghanistan as a disjuncture from the war rather than the fruits of it. The Taliban in December 2001 sue for peace with Hamid Karzai. Hamid Karzai wants to take the deal. The Taliban say as long as Mullah Omar can live in some kind of like house arrest in Kandahar, we are willing to lay our weapons down, demobilize and, you know, start negotiations on what Afghanistan's political future is. Guess what? With the exception of Mullah Omar, those are the terms of Donald Trump's and Joe Biden's now ratified 2019 deal with the Taliban. We could have had exactly that in December 2001. And the Bush administration, in particular Donald Rumsfeld at the Pentagon podium, says, unacceptable, and does this kind of like World War II-esque demand for unconditional surrender from the Taliban. And the Taliban is basically like, good luck with that. Like, do you not remember who you're dealing with? And that right there from the beginning, right, that is the difference from we need to get the guys who did 9-11, which because they were in Afghanistan required doing something with the Taliban. But then the Taliban is willing to cut them loose so you can make a deal. And what we got, which was a global war on terror, right? Which is so much more expansive, right? It's not about a practical issue, like the location of specific Al-Qaeda members. It has to be bigger, right? It has to be so much bigger than like striking a deal with Mullah Omar. And like you're locked into that logic once you accept the imprecision of a war on terror, because like you have no rigorous basis to then say what we're really interested in is like arresting you know, they wouldn't have said arresting, they would have said killing. But like what we're really interested in doing is stopping Al-Qaeda from doing the next thing. And accordingly, a deal that takes away what at that point was its major territorial base of operations is like the right strategic thing to do. But even right there, you're substituting a strategic logic that like the war on terror does not admit until like you reach a point of like true undeniable disaster. What I'm getting at is that the bloodletting we are likely to see in Afghanistan is almost assuredly going to be defined and understood as the alternative to fighting in Afghanistan, not the result of it. And that is a major, major, major mistake that is American exceptionalism junkies going into withdrawal because they can't accept that what it means to lose a war is that the enemy in this case wins and the enemy defines the terms of its victory. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to let you go. But uh, Spencer Ackerman, the book is Reign of Terror. Everybody should buy it. The Substack is Forever Wars. Uh, it is a great read. Everyone should subscribe. I mean, subscribe to all Substacks, but especially this one is uh, excellent. So thank you very much. Thanks to Ness Smith-Savadov, our producer here. Uh, thanks, as always, to our sponsors. And the Weeds will be back on Tuesday. Tuesday.